Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good afternoon. How are you doing today, sir? It's a wonderful day, Hadi. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited about this uh, episode because your company is a little bit unique in what it does. But before we jump right into that, I'll introduce you very quickly. Blair Cohen is the founder and president of Authentic ID, a disruptive transformational AI fraud prevention and identity company. You've raised to date around 100 million. And we are excited to know, how did you start? Take us back to the founding aha moment. Oh, goodness. The founding or the aha moment, there were a couple, actually, Hadi, along this route. The first, I'm a serial entrepreneur. This is my fifth business as an adult. And the learnings and the impetus for creating Authentic ID came from my previous business, which was a background screening company. And in the background screening world, my company, Infomart, served about 12,000 different companies throughout the globe. And part of doing a background check is performing an identity verification. But the way that that industry used to perform identity verifications and largely still does today is pretty broken. That's where we take a candidate or an applicant's asserted information. So they would assert their social security number, for example. We would take their social security number and run it through one of the credit bureaus to see if that name was actually associated with the asserted social security number. And I started that company back in 1988, and that worked really well back in 1988. But starting around 2002, I started to see this alarming trend where multiple names were coming back from the bureaus associated with every social security number. In some cases, I would see as many as 50 different names associated with the social security number. It was a a tremendous problem, not just for the customers that we were servicing, but for me to get my arms around. And it became pretty obvious that using data was no longer the right way to prove identity because of data breaches. Anybody could steal your information. They could hack it. They could harvest it. They could mine it. They could buy it. There were a lot of different ways due to the rapid rise of data breaches for bad actors and fraudsters to get a hold of every bit of information they needed to know about you to reliably impersonate you using existing tactics. And the existing tactics that enterprises used to verify your identity was to ask you out-of-wallet questions. They were called them knowledge-based authentication questions. But basically, they're the questions that theoretically only you know the answer to. Things like the make and model of your first car, the amount of your mortgage payment last month, the name of your cat, things like that. But what we found was that fraudsters and bad actors were very proficient and figuring out the answers to all these questions. But real people weren't. You know, real people would forget the address that they lived at 15 years ago. And a lot of real people couldn't successfully get through the knowledge-based authentication process. So it created this tremendous amount of friction, didn't provide the enterprises any greater confidence 
and just wasn't working. So I started to really think about what's a much better way to prove identity that doesn't involve data. So that was how Authentic ID really got started. Amazing story. And I could resonate with you with this knowledge-based identity check because I forgot like what's the make and model of my car. Or they ask you, what year did you graduate your school? Who was your best schoolmate? No one remembers this after 10, 15 years. But how did you overcome the challenge or the friction of the enterprise that has installed this knowledge-based identity check? Because you go to them and say, hey, I have a new way of detecting fraud or authenticating ID. But most of the time they'd say, no, we're happy with that. We don't want to change things. How did you break that cycle? You are absolutely right. They looked at me when I approached them with this concept. And our concept, just to dive down into it, is very simple. You ask how authentic ID works. It's easy. It's quick. And it's something that you can count on. It generates a lot of confidence. It's conclusive at the end of the day. So it's a pretty simple process. Instead of you know, spending three or four minutes trying to answer questions. In just a few seconds, we ask you to take a a picture of your government-issued identity document, which is considered the gold standard for proving identity everywhere around the globe. Anywhere you want to establish a new relationship, the first thing anybody asks you for is your government-issued ID. And then the second factor that we use so that somebody can't steal your ID and use it for nefarious purposes is biometrics. So it's real simple to take a couple pictures of the front and back of your ID and a quick picture of your face. We do this in a fully automated way. So we produce a conclusive result in about six seconds time instead of three or four minutes of pain that knowledge-based authentication brings to the process. But nevertheless, when I approached enterprises, and this was such a paradigm-shifting technology that I decided early on it was going to be just as hard to sell small companies on this paradigm shift. I mean, just as hard to sell big companies as it was to sell hard companies on this paradigm shifting concept. So initially focused on very large enterprises, large banks. They had this obligation, the regulated industries. They had an obligation to know their customer, but they were using this old-fashioned way. But when I approached them with this new concept, they looked at me like I had three heads and were scratching their head and thinking, what are you talking about? How does that prove in any way that somebody is who they say they are? So it took a lot of evangelism, a ton of time learning. More than anything else, I go to every industry conference and pull every fraud person off to the side and ask them all the hard questions and really, really learned about their pain points But it was just that. It took a couple of years, Hadi. Thankfully, I had the wherewithal. I'd sold my interest in Infomart a few years before and had the ability to withstand that couple years of just evangelizing and basically preaching and teaching this new way of doing things. And finally started to get people's attention. And uh, the rest is kind of history. Amazing. Since we started discussing your first sales Take us back to that moment. I believe it was led by you. So it was more of a founder-led sales trying to go out and get people excited. Take us back to your strategies framework. How did you find your first few customers? So initially, it was a little bit misguided. I thought that I wanted to go after the regulated industries first, being banks primarily. 
because again, they had this obligation to another customer for roughly the same cost, we could introduce this new, faster, better, more conclusive way of doing things. And finally got an opportunity with one of the big telcos. Oh, anyway, let me go back. I started with the banks, found that that was a really difficult route to go. The banks are very highly regulated. And to get into one of the large banks, a lot of challenges. You need to have huge infrastructure, lots of lawyers, lots of InfoSec people. So kind of shifted focus. And due to my previous background at InfoMart, my concept was I wanted to get data on everybody in the U.S. first, expand it globally from there. But I wanted to know who was good and who was bad, who was who they said they were, who wasn't. And the fastest way to collect and gather all that data, to me, was to go to the telecommunications companies. At the time, there were only four in the U.S., and virtually everybody had a cell phone. You know, that was an aha moment. It was like, okay, goodness, very quickly, if we were to convince the telecommunications companies that this is going to work for them, we could very quickly gather data on everybody and then continue the vision of getting to know if you were a good person or a bad person. So it started with the telecommunications companies, and they had a tremendous problem. They were getting hit left and right by people stealing iPhones. The old scam against telcos used to be to take over your number and make lots of international calls, and they got hurt by that. But the telecommunications companies figured out how to shut that down. But what they couldn't figure out how to shut down was how you could walk in and buy five iPhones who were increasingly rising in value at that point in 2012, I think the top-end iPhone cost about $1,200. So if you were able to walk in to a store and walk out with six of those, it was a pretty lucrative day. But they would go to every telco and sometimes get 20 or 30. So the way that we got our first customer was kind of unusual. It was one of the big telcos, and they said, we've got a tremendous problem. We have this guy that we've called Iron Man. They literally dubbed him Iron Man and had pictures of him on the wall that continuously was hitting them almost every day. And he was really good at what he would do. He would steal data, breach data the previous day. So really, really fresh data, create super realistic looking identity documents and walk in. And the data on the document represented somebody that had was a good person that the telco wanted to do business with, had good credit, that kind of thing. But the one consistency in all those identity documents was his face. And we walked into a room and they said, gosh, this is our biggest challenge. How do we stop that? And I said, I can stop that. We can stop it tomorrow and we can stop it forever. And fortunately, they believed me. And we did. And uh, within 30 days, Iron Man was in jail. And that technology and those techniques have been adopted pretty broadly. Last year, we saved the telecommunication industry just in the U.S. alone about $3.4 billion in fraud losses that we know about. It's probably bigger than that. But I'm very excited about the story because it's very intriguing. But what I would like to know, because this was back in early 2000s, how were you able to get into the telcos? Because today it's easy, right? You go and subscribe maybe to a platform like Zoom Info, Lucia, LinkedIn Navigator. You say you go in, you, you search, you, you might figure out who's the decision maker and you try to target them. Back then, how did you get into these big companies, big organizations? 
I was very, very fortunate. And let me just correct on the timeline. Authentic ID, I founded in late 2011. So it was really 2012 and had been evangelizing to the telcos. I did it the hard way back before we had Zoom Info to figure out who the decision makers were. And you know, was evangelizing to these fraud people and they started to get it, but it was just the fraud people. They started to get it and understand how this could help. And there's a private industry group called the Telecommunications Risk Management Association that meets annually. And it was an invitation only event of just the fraud fighters from the telecommunications industry where they would meet and collaborate on new ways of defeating the bad actors. I was fortunate enough to be invited to that private industry group in 2013 and to give my presentation to this esteemed group of you know, policymakers and decision makers within that arena and formed relationships with those folks. It wasn't just that. It took a lot more work and effort, but I think that was my entry point into the telcos. Amazing. Did you do any strategies to acquire customers that wasn't scalable, but you had to do it early on because maybe you had limited budget or limited resources? I think the whole thing was really not scalable from the beginning because it was a paradigm shift. This was a completely new way of doing things. People had been proving identity the same way for the past hundred years. It was really a well-baked policy procedure process So, you know, it's not scalable. When I'm the one with the passion for this, I'm the one with the concept with this. It just naturally, inherently wasn't scalable. It was me out being on stage, doing as many webinars, educating as many people as I could. So it naturally led to kind of slow progression. Did you ever at any point in time decide to quit? Because it's a hard grind every day to go out and find clients. Most of them would reject you. There's rejections involved when, when you're selling. Did you at any point decide, you know, maybe maybe this is not for me? I think in past businesses, yeah. The background screening industry, I got offered a lot of money very early on. And I thought, gosh, this is going to be hard. Maybe I should take this. But I started Authentic ID with a different thought process. So money has always been easy for me to come by, easy for me to make. And I was getting older in age and wanted to leave something to my children that was more than money. I wanted to leave a legacy. And I wanted to change the world. I had this grand vision of eliminating fraud and making user experiences so much better. Nobody should ever have to go through KBA again. So that passion is really what kept you going. I just had this passion and I would just never let go of that vision to change the world. So despite the rejections, I never got down. I was a really, really strong believer that this was the right path forward. This was going to be the right change. And as we see today, this concept of taking pictures of IDs and taking pictures of faces is pretty broadly adopted. We were the first company to ever do that in a fully automated way. Today, I think there's about 30 different companies that do this. And most everybody throughout the world has gone through this process at some point in time. So that's kind of exhilarating to me to see that this vision I had and this never give up attitude, you know, made it through. Amazing. Give us a little bit of background about your technical expertise. Are you the technical co-founder? Have you built the technology or are you more the visionary? 
I would say I'm more the visionary. I did have a business, so I've been in technology for quite some time. I had a company before the background screening company that I bought and sold, IBM mainframe hardware. So I learned a ton about IBM mainframe hardware during those few years. Never became a programmer, knew the hardware side of things. Then when it came to the background screening industry, that was a very, very manual process that caused all kinds of challenges. Lost faxes. We used faxes back in the day. So I realized very quickly within about a year of starting that company that this whole thing needed to be automated. So I had this vision on the way the software should work, what its features and functionality should be. But I didn't build that out myself. I went and hired some of the best and brightest folks in technology that I could find to help me with my deficiency in that regard. Yeah, amazing. I mean, a lot of uh, founders, one of the things they advise you when you're building a company is to find the right co-founder. But the problem is that it's hard to find the right co-founder. How did you manage to find the right talent? That was a real process. The first software that we built at Infomart, I went to the local technical university and started interviewing the, the professors there and finding out who their best and brightest were. And then was very fortunate and convinced that professor to take on this project as a project for her class. So we got a whole team of 40 people in her class to contribute to the features and functionality that should exist in the software to automate the background screening industry. So right place, right time. Luck did have something to do with it for sure. Amazing. What is a principle that you live by that has helped you, you know, be successful? I think I've, I've touched on it a little bit already, but it's passion. You know, without passion for what you're doing, when I talk about passion, I mean the right type of passion. A lot of entrepreneurs want to be entrepreneurs for one reason, and that's to become, or two reasons maybe, either rich or famous. And I would advise you that if those are your goals. Don't become an entrepreneur because you're guaranteed to fail. If that's your motivation is to become rich or famous, you will not succeed. I absolutely guarantee it. You've got to have passion for what you're doing, for the product, for being the best in the world. You just have to have that passion. And then from there, the other two principles that I think make building a successful business really kind of simple are two things. Take care of your customers. Listen to your customers. Listen to them carefully. In the background screening world, we had one of our largest customers that was just tough. Every time she called, nobody wanted to take that call, but I couldn't wait to take that call. She was tough, but she made us so much better gave us so many good ideas and told us about deficiencies that I didn't realize existed. So listen to your customers, A, and B, take care of your employees. If you take really good care of your employees, they're going to take really good care of your customers. So it's those three key ingredients, I think, Hadi. It's, it's passion, listen to your customers, act on your customers' wishes, and take care of the people that serve your customers. It's that simple. What has been the hardest thing that you had to do to be who you are today? Oh, you have to give up an awful lot. 
the entrepreneur's life is, is one where you don't sleep often. There are many times of uncertainty. I think I missed my oldest daughter's birthday every year for 14 years in a row. One of the most important conferences that we ever attended inevitably fell on my daughter's birthday every single year. So I missed all those birthdays. I missed lots of time from my children and my family having to work late at night, having to get up, you know, go away and do these speaking engagements and be away from out of town for extended periods of time. That was probably the hardest. It is definitely a challenge when you want to grow a, an organization. You also have another organization, which is the family. We're just limited with 24 hours, unfortunately. That's the scarcest resources, which is time. One last question. What's next for uh, Authentic ID and Blair? What's next for Authentic ID? We're going to continue to grow out our ability to detect counterfeit documents. We're kind of in this game of whack-a-mole, and there's new tools that have become widely available to novices. Um, generative AI is pretty scary stuff. So in the past, to create a fake ID, it took a fair amount of hard work and effort for anybody to do. Now with generative AI, we can do this in scale. You can just chat to the engine and have it make you 100 different IDs. Or you can generate completely synthetic faces of people that have never existed before. So... Tackling that and making sure that our enterprise customers don't fall prey and don't fall victim to these new tools, these new techniques, is something that we're really focused on. Fraudsters, it's organized crime. So this is a job for these folks, and they have the ability to act outside the boundaries of the law. They can share data and collaborate with one another that's not as easy with all the rules and regulations and privacy laws that exist for companies like Authentic ID today. So we hope to improve collaboration to figure out ways to be able to share data amongst competitors and amongst enterprises. But, um, you know, fortunately, fraud's never going away and they continue to come up with new techniques. We have some job security here. Our customers expect us to continue to thwart all of these attempts. So that and then I also see the evolution of digital IDs happening very, very quickly. But our customers are enterprises and you can't just look at an ID that's presented on a phone and know if it's real or not. Those things are actually easier to reproduce, recreate or create a fake of than a real identity document. So our customers and there's about five or six different standards that exist across the globe. And our customers expect us to be able to authenticate all of these IDs, whether they're physical documents or whether they're digital IDs regardless of the framework upon which they were established. So interoperability is going to be a big part of Authentic ID moving forward. Well, you have a hard job to do. You're highly responsible because you're validating certain things. And with, as you said, generative AI, the job is becoming even harder. The fraudster are now manipulating the voice. I've read the recently where someone has impersonated another person with their real voice and they called their mom they said hey i'm in trouble can you send me money and it's the voice of the fraudster mimicked uh, with a child's voice it was so real that such scams and frauds are hard to detect so 
I salute you for your hard job and we wish you the best of luck. Where can people reach you and how can our listeners be of help to you? Well, come learn. Um, embrace digital identity as quick as you can. I would highly encourage you to eliminate passwords and even eliminate user IDs. It's the source of virtually every breach, every malware attack, every ransomware attack. We've seen shutdowns of oil and gas pipelines, utility grids, hospitals, and cities. So act on this, embrace digital transformation as quickly as you can, eliminate those passwords, eliminate the user IDs. For me, I'm easy to find. I'm Blair at AuthenticID.com. Go to AuthenticID.com and learn more. We have a very strong, talented team that would be happy to educate you on anything that you'd like to learn more about. I can also be found on LinkedIn, all the normal channels. I'm not hard to find. I'm on stage 10 to 15 times a year. So Google me. Amazing, Blair. We'll put all of this in the show notes. Thank you for stopping by. This was an amazing episode. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much, Hadi. It was really great. Uh, I appreciate all your intriguing questions today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 